It's a joy to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day morning, and I ask if you would please open your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah. We'll be looking this morning at verses uh, 1 through 8 of the 6th chapter. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and this will be a text uh, that we reflect upon this morning. Uh, So if you would please turn there to Isaiah chapter 6. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you gather us here in your presence, that you speak your word to us, that the same power of your word that brought the cosmos into existence, everything that we see, both visible and invisible powers, is the same all-powerful word that you utter through the preaching of your word, by the outpouring of your spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would make your word effectual unto salvation. We pray that you would make it effectual unto our sanctification, that you would bring glory to your name, that you would conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Each year we can say that as we come upon this particular season, that uh, the world gives thought to the birth of Christ, at least in some shape, form, or fashion. Uh, It's a bit difficult not to think or to say something about Christ when the name of Christ is embedded in the name of the holiday. It's the celebration of the Mass of the Christ, the Christ Mass, or Christmas. However, for some, Christmas is just a time of holiday cheer, of family, of friends, of gifts, and food. But Christ, of course, only appears in the name of the day. For others, perhaps Christmas is a day when people who ordinarily might not think about Christ will give thought to his birth, perhaps because they pass by the nativity scene in front of a church, or perhaps because they see another nativity scene uh, in front of their neighbor's home. And I think it's maybe because of the utter approachability of an infant uh, 
that people think of God in terms of him being near, perhaps like us, and maybe from a certain vantage point, all too human. I suspect few of us give much thought to approaching an infant. When we see an infant, we're willing to get close. We're willing, perhaps, to smile upon the infant. We're willing to coddle and touch and caress the infant. Although I can remember when my children were first born, I was afraid to get near them because I was afraid I might break them. You know, they were so small and seemingly fragile. But I think what's so important for us to recognize is that what we want to do as we give thought to the birth of Christ and as the infant Savior was there in the manger, we also want to look at what the rest of the scriptures have to say about the holiness and the transcendence of God. We have to recognize that there's a sense in which the God that we worship is a God who is far, far away. And when I say that he's at a great distance and that he's far away, I don't mean that he's spatially, geographically, at some sort of significant distance from us. Rather, by saying that he is far away, I mean that he is holy, that he is unlike us, that he is God, that he is transcendent, that he is perfectly righteous, uh, that he is utterly moral. And we, on the other hand, are sinful creatures. And it's in that sense that we are far, far away and that God is utterly at a distance from us. But on the other hand, as we give thought to the incarnation of the Son of God, there's also a sense in which he is very close, not only in terms of his willingness to condescend despite his holiness to come unto sinful creatures like us, but in a sense we can say spatially, uh, the infinite God becomes a finite human being. And so he is both a God who is far off, but also a God who is near. And in order to understand and to appreciate the nearness of our God, I think that we have to look at it in terms of his utter transcendence. We have to look at it in terms of how far away God is so that we can appreciate the great depths to which he has condescended to draw nigh unto us. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to give thought to God's transcendence first by looking at Isaiah's vision, this vision that he had of God in the temple this day when he was gathered in God's presence to worship. Secondly, I want us to look at another passage of scripture that presents God in his transcendence, and that is we can call it perhaps Job's visitation. In other words, when God visited Job, And then third and finally, we want to think of God's nearness in terms of the incarnation of the Son of God as he draws near unto us sinful creatures. So Isaiah's vision, Job's visitation, and God with us, Emmanuel's incarnation. So first, let's give thought to what the prophet Isaiah here says in the sixth chapter as we come upon this famous passage of Isaiah's vision then I want to say that it's perhaps one of the the more fantastic passages of the Old Testament. And it's fantastic because 
here is Isaiah, who is, by all you know, understanding, a godly man. He's a prophet of the nation of Israel. So we know that he's going to be holy. We know that he's going to be righteous, that he's going to be a godly man. And he comes to the temple on this day for what was all intents and purposes, an ordinary day of worship. Now, when I say ordinary, I want you to understand what I mean by this. By ordinary, I don't want to categorize worship as being something that is mundane or pedestrian, as if it's ho-hum, as if we come in here Sunday after Sunday just to experience the ordinary. There is a sense in which any time that we gather in the presence of God, it is something that should be extraordinary. It is something that should be special to us. It is something that should be treasured and important to us. And I suspect this is how worship was for Isaiah, to go to the temple, to worship in the presence of God, to observe the sacrifices, to offer up prayers of confession and of thanksgiving and of adoration and of intercession. And so I suspect that when Isaiah went to the temple this day, that he entered into the temple, but that he never anticipated that he would worship in the presence of God in the way in which it unfolded here in the sixth chapter. And in this sense, it was anything but ordinary. Isaiah here describes what we can call the ineffable glory of God's presence with words that seemingly Buckle beneath the weight of God's glorious presence, words that strain to capture the utter awe-inspiring nature of the presence of God. When we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Think of this. There's a sense in which Isaiah doesn't really necessarily behold the Lord face to face, but rather merely the train of his robe as it fills the temple with glory. If there was ever an event that confirmed God's transcendence, his otherness, his set-apartness, his holiness, it's this vision. It's this manifestation of God's glorious presence to the prophet. You know, you think of it, think, think, of, think of how other God is when we read in Exodus 19.5 that God says, for all the earth is mine. There's not a whole lot in this earth that I can say is mine. You know, maybe my house is mine. I can't say that all of my food is mine because I have three children that eat a lot of it. I may say this is mine and then all of a sudden it, my food disappears. There's not a whole lot that we can lay claim to saying this is mine and yet God can say of the earth, the whole earth is mine. In Numbers 23, 19, God says to Moses, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God is omniscient. He does not change his mind. 
nor is he a man that he should lie. How often do we change our minds? I change my mind all the time. How transcendent and other is God when the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verses 7 and following, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I make my bed in the far side of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me. Your right hand shall hold me fast. There is nowhere on this earth that we can go from the presence of God. That is how unlike us he is. The psalmist says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I can't tell you how often I wish I had the vision of a cat, because in the middle of the night I get up and go around the house. Just the other morning I thought started worrying, huh? I hope the, the faucets don't start freezing over. So I you know, get up and I start opening doors and cabinets and making sure that the water can flow. And I thought, boy, it would be helpful if I had cat's vision right now because I could see a whole lot better. Not so with God. There is no darkness for God. God sees it all. And I think all of these truths must have come rushing into Isaiah's mind in a way never before that as they had, because now as he stood in the presence of God and his glory filled the temple, Isaiah was overwhelmed with God's transcendence. It confronted him head on with all of his glory. And here, not only was God there revealed in all of his glory, but the the heavenly attendants were there flying about him. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the call of the seraphim, the earth Isaiah tells us, began to tremble and quake and the thresholds of the temple shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I suspect this was a revelation of God that few have ever seen. And at the revelation of God's thrice holy glory, Isaiah immediately recognized that he was in big trouble. He says in verse 5, woe is me. Those words may not seem all that significant to us, but remember Jesus' words in the Gospels when he was speaking to the Pharisees, woe unto you. Isaiah was calling a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, it's like sometimes what happens is that you take, I take one of my, you know, I have undershirts, and I and I have them in there, and my wife does a great job. Uh, She keeps them, you know, clean and everything like that, but. 
take, take one that's, say, three or four years old and then set it next to a brand new one. And you think, what happened? <laughs> Why is this brand new one so brilliantly white and this one is not so white? In other words, you look at a, at a, at a white T-shirt and you think that it is, it, it is white, that it is, that it is clean until you hold it up against one that is absolutely pristine and all of a sudden you see that there's a significant difference. Take Isaiah's holiness, his righteousness, and you think this is a godly man until you hold it up against the white hot glory of the perfection and the righteousness of our transcendent God and all of a sudden you realize that Isaiah was a sinful man. His own righteousness was but as filthy rags, and Isaiah knew it, and this is why he called a curse upon his head, because he believed that his doom was imminent. How could he, a sinful man, stand in the presence of this thrice holy God and live? God is far away, morally, ethically. And this filled Isaiah with great fear. And yet in his great mercy... God dispatched one of the seraphim with a burning coal from the altar and touched his lips. I think the lips are representative of the whole person and that they're connected to the mouth. And if you think of what Jesus says, is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so by touching his lips with the coal from the altar, it was another way of saying, I am bringing cleansing. I am bringing purification. I am bringing forgiveness, not simply to your mouth, but to your whole being. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God brought forgiveness. He brought mercy. And what he was saying is, though I am a God that is far off, I am going to come near. And though you're unworthy to be in my presence, I will create the circumstances that will allow you to be in my presence. I will forgive you of your sin. I will cleanse you of your impurities. I will wash you and make you whole. And so God's grace, mercy, and love met Isaiah's sin and fear. And yet something else is afoot here in this passage, and that what God is telling the prophet is that I, the God who am afar off, I will draw near. I will come near to you. I will be in your presence. A second Old Testament passage, I think, that confronts us with God's transcendence is the book of Job. The book opens, of course, with this amazing vision, this amazing revelation of God's heavenly court, with God unilaterally making decisions about Job's life, decisions that were unto devastating effects and results. Job lost all of his possessions. He lost his family, his house, and his health. And to the point where his wife basically tells him, why don't you simply just curse God and die? And so understandably, Job was in a sense crying out that he wanted an audience with God. He wanted to, in a sense, bring him to court and say, I want to understand what it is that you've done to me. Why have you brought all of this into my life? 
In Job 9, verse 32, we read this, because Job lamented, he said, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. In other words, Job wanted to face God in a court of law and ask, What is it that I have done? Why have you done these things? And he laments the fact that he says, God isn't a man that I can call him into court and I can put him into the witness stand and I can cross-examine him. You know, I mean, when there are certain things in our lives, many things in our lives, when you think about it, that are simply beyond our control. You know, there's, there's, there's many things, you know, it's like I've said this before, there are many things in our lives that I realize, okay, I can control this. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm washing the dishes. I can control how clean I make this plate. Uh, I'm building something. I can control the dimensions. But there's so much, and I would say the majority in our life, that we have no control over. How people act, what happens when you pull out into traffic, uh, the weather. Boy, I'd like to, you know, you wake up Friday morning, who turned off the heat? out of our control. Who do you go to complain to? You know, it seems like everybody these days wants to take somebody to court. One of the silly ones that I saw is that moviegoers decided to sue a movie company because they thought that the movie trailer was misleading. So they brought a $5 million lawsuit against a movie company because a movie star who appeared in the trailer did not appear in the movie, and so the judge let them go forward with this lawsuit. I think, give me a break. (laughs) It's just a movie. $5 million lawsuit? Well, what happens when the weather comes in and the temperatures drop in some parts of the country, 40 below? Who are you going to sue? Can you bring God into court and say... You need to give an answer for this weather system that you've brought in. Well, Job wanted this, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. He says, I want my day in court. You've all heard the saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. Job got it. Job got his wish. And you see this at the ending of the book of Job, where all of a sudden God enters into the picture and he utters at least what are to me some of the most terrifying words, I think, in all of the scriptures in Job 38:2, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? I would paraphrase this as, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And as we hear these words, I suspect that were we in Job's place, they would fill us and strike us with terror. Because like Isaiah, all of a sudden, Job finds himself standing in the presence of this holy and righteous and sovereign God. 
And here, God emerges from a whirlwind. I think imagery that is evocative of the dark, fiery, foreboding clouds of Sinai. When God appeared at Sinai, it says that he appeared out of the mountain, out of the midst of fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, so much so that God's presence terrified the people. And the people told Moses, you go up there. We don't want to hear his voice anymore. It is terrifying to us. And yet here comes God. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? And then he says in the very next verse to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. All right. You want to take me on in court? Let's go to court. Stand up and dress me like a man. And you tell me how I'm supposed to run things. Some vary on the accounts, but as best as I've been able to count, God asks Job 77 questions about astronomy, oceanography, meteorology, zoology. This is like my worst nightmare. I literally have nightmares that all of a sudden the final exam is coming and I haven't been to class all semester long. Any of you have this one? And, and, and you realize I'm going to fail this final exam and, and then for me, it gets worse because then it's like, and if I fail this exam, I can't graduate high school. They're going to come and they're going to take my PhD away. You didn't graduate high school. And I have to work through this in my mind. Well, who cares if I didn't graduate from high school at this point? Does it really matter? But it's terrifying. This is a final exam that is utterly terrifying because God starts asking Job all kinds of questions. And like Isaiah, I think Job was immediately humbled and ashamed of himself. Job 40, verses 4 and 5. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He's like, I am sorry. Why did I ever open my mouth? I am nothing in your presence. And yet, in spite of perhaps the seeming terror that we encounter when God says to Job, dress for action like a man, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Believe it or not, there is hope in these words. Hope. Because do you remember when Job said back in Chapter 9, verse 32, for he is not like a man as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. He says he's not a man. He's transcendent. He is, he is, he is out there. He is far off. He is holy, holy, holy. He is omnipresent. He is righteous. He is not a man. And yet what does God say in Job 38, verse 3, dress for action like a man. I will come and talk to you like a man. He's saying, I will condescend to you and I will converse with you at your level like a man. 
the holy transcendent, holy other God, who is not like a man, is telling us through the prophet, through the book of Job, that he will condescend to us and he will come to us and he will deal with us like a man. It's hinting at the incarnation. And I think what is, what is also, I think, amazing here is towards the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, there are many who believe, and especially given the way that it's translated, they believe that there's a sense in which Job ends the book on a note of repentance when he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'm not persuaded that that's the best way to translate it. In your ESV Bibles, especially if you have annotated ones, it offers an alternative translation that I think that radically changes the ending of the book. The alternate translation says this, and I think that this is significant. It says in Job 42, 6, I waste away. He says, I'm dying. And then he utters these words, yet I am comforted upon dust and ashes. In other words, when he says, I waste away and yet I am comforted upon dust and ashes, it's the whole book of Job builds to this point where Job is asking why. He has all of these questions, why? And then here comes God and he addresses Job like a man. The transcendent God comes to him. He condescends to him. And the final answer to all of Job's questions is not God giving him answers, but it is God's presence, God's presence is the answer to all of his questions. Presence, God's presence is the answer to every single one of his questions, which is why he says, I waste away, yet I am comforted in my dust and ashes. I am comforted by the presence of God as he is with me in the midst of my suffering. We can say that I think that the scriptures are honing this point as the point gets sharper and it gets more precise as God is hinting at it throughout redemptive history that I am transcendent. I am not like you, but I will come to you. I will condescend to you. I will make fellowship with me possible. I will forgive you of your sins. I will come to you as a man and I will comfort you with my presence. Which is why when we come to the incarnation of Christ and remember who Christ is, he is the son of God, God in the flesh. When we come to the incarnation of Christ and as we have this vision of Isaiah, as we have Job's encounter with the transcendent creator, they all come to a head in the incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yehoshua, God saves, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. 
the burning coal that brought cleansing and purification from sin emerged from the shadows of the Old Testament. And now in the light of the New Testament, we see that it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is going to bring this forgiveness of our sins. It's not some coal from the altar, but it is the God in the flesh who brings us the forgiveness of our sins, that cleanses us from our unholiness, that enables us to be in the presence of God. Moreover, not only does God say that he will save us from our sins through his son, but he says in the verses that follow, Matthew 1, and following, and this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, nevertheless, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, God's presence with us. Behold, I waste away, yet I am comforted upon dust and ashes. God would be present, not merely like a man, but he would come as a man. And to be able to pull these two things together, I think that some of the most perhaps maybe well-known words in the Bible, but yet perhaps not seldomly seldomly appreciated, is in the 12th chapter of John, where John is talking about Jesus as he as, is, is at the festival of the Passover, and some Greeks, some Gentiles came up to him and wanted to speak to him. And John writes in John twelve thirty six and following, he said, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still hid and did not, uh, did, they, I'm sorry, they still not, uh, did not believe in him, so that the word that was spoken by Isaiah the prophet may be fulfilled. And so now here he's quoting from the context of Isaiah 6, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And here now comes the the, the crucial words in this passage. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did he see? In context here, he's speaking of Christ. Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of Christ. When did Isaiah see Christ's glory? He certainly didn't see his incarnate glory. He wasn't alive. And so what John is telling us Stunningly so is that the vision that Isaiah saw in the temple that day was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in all of his glory. The glory that Christ says he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. Think of the utter disparity between the transcendence of the pre-incarnate Christ, the God who is far off, who is now drawn near, and whom Mary nestled in her arms as a tiny infant. I can't help but think of Paul's famous words from the second chapter of Philippians, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of the utter disparities. God far, God near. The infinite God becomes finite. The invisible God becomes visible. The untouchable God becomes touchable. He who was afar off drew near. He who was not a man became man. He who was high and holy became he who was meek and lowly and eventually lifted up to hang from a cross so that we would have the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was the coal taken from the altar of heaven and pressed upon our lips to make us clean. No longer need we cry with the prophet, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a person of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips. No longer do we cry pleading for Christ's presence. For though we waste away and are comforted in dust and ashes, but rather we have more than the hope of comfort, but ultimately the hope of the promise of glory. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16 and following, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are comforted with his presence. But it is a comfort that leads to glory. It is a presence that leads to to the new creation. It is a presence that leads uh, to the renewal of all things. So, beloved in Christ, as we meditate upon the incarnation of Christ... We want to hold his transcendence and eminence together. Remember that the son of God who appeared to Isaiah in the temple and drove him to call a curse upon himself is the same son of God who Mary held in her arms. The same brow that looked to Mary that blessed night wore a crown of thorns for you. Those tiny hands that clasped Mary's hand and the feet that rested in her arms had nails driven through them for you. Also that we might have salvation and in the midst of our tears would have the presence of God comforting us amidst the dust and ashes. So, beloved in Christ, look to Jesus Christ, our Savior, by grace alone, through faith alone, and give thanks this Lord's Day morning for the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have not remained far off For we are sinful creatures unworthy of your presence, unworthy of your mercy, unworthy of your grace. And yet, in the unfathomable depths of your love, you have poured out your mercy upon us in Christ. 
He whose train of of his robe filled the temple with glory and caused the very thresholds and the foundations of the earth to tremble has drawn near to us as a man. In the midst of our woes and our sufferings, he has come to us to comfort us, but not merely to comfort, but also to save. For he has given us salvation through his perfect suffering and the ministrations of his cross. He has given us the hope of eternal life through the resurrection of the dead. We pray, O Lord, that in the flurry of the season, we would not forget these vital truths that we would remember that you are holy, that we deserve your wrath, but in your great love and mercy you have poured out upon us in Christ through the Spirit that we can draw near. We pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with praise and thanksgiving and that we would thank you, O Lord, for these blessings and that you would fill our hearts with a desire to tell others and that in all of these things you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.